Welcome to Every Quarter, the voice of Andover, Phillips Academy's official podcast where we share the compelling stories and ideas of our faculty, alumni, students, and distinguished campus guests. Our monthly show features candid conversations on current events, academia, and Andover's connection to important matters happening around the world. If you like what we do, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a review, comment, and rating. Your feedback helps promote every quarter and helps us tell the type of stories you want to hear. Jake Bean, class of 2008, grew up with a deep respect for those who served their country. He knew he wanted to join the Navy and live a life of service. He comes from a military family and clearly saw his future in the armed forces. But growing up in Idaho, he had no clue about Andover or the path in which he'd take to become a Navy helicopter pilot. In this episode of Every Quarter, Lieutenant Bean talks with Director of Communications Tracy Sweet about how he applied to Andover without his parents' permission, the tough decision between Georgetown's School of Foreign Services and the Naval Academy, and his deployments overseas, where he flies missions to support aircraft carriers, tactical operations, and at-sea medical rescues. Um, so my end of story is kind of an unconventional one, and the fact that I even ended up here. <clears throat> so I'm from Idaho. Um, that's where I grew up. And no one in my family went to private school or anything like that before this. And I have older siblings, and no one ever went to public school in Idaho. Um, and in Idaho, there's like there are no schools like this. There's no boarding schools out in Idaho. Yeah. If you get, in Idaho, if you get sent to boarding school, you get sent to like juvenile school, and you did something bad. <clears throat> so uh, the fact that I even heard about Andover was based on uh, one of my friends in seventh grade took the PSATs, and his scores were posted on I think a database called Rocky Mountain Talent Search. Um, and so Andover saw his scores and trying to recruit outside the Northeast, so they sent him a general interest letter. Uh, he told me about it, and at the time I hadn't even considered like schools like this existed because again in my world they didn't. Yep. Um, but I was very interested in the opportunity. I kind of felt that I was um, not really going to be able to reach my full potential at the place that I was at in Idaho and the school that I was at. Yeah. Um, and so I was really interested in the opportunity of, of seeing what this was going to be like, and so I did a lot of research online. Um, I asked my parents if I could apply, which they said no. But I just kept applying anyway. That's an interesting. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then my dad was just like, oh, whatever, like let him apply. Like, what's the harm in applying, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, then I ended up uh, applying and getting in, and uh, got a pretty good financial aid package to come here. So I was able to to come and uh, initially thought that I had made a terrible mistake. I was like woefully unprepared academically okay. uh, when I first got here, and obviously it was a big culture shock. I was 14 years old, leaving leaving Idaho, and um, not really used to a bunch of kids from the Northeast and different kind of culture. Wasn't prepared academically for my classes. So I struggled a lot and uh, was pretty homesick. And uh, that's one of the funny things about Jonathan is he and I, he was, we lived in the same freshman dorm yep. uh, on the same floor, just in different wings of the building. Uh, and he was also like really homesick freshman year. Uh, and I was really homesick freshman year. And so we were like separately miserable and we could have been there to console ourselves as friends, but we, neither of us admitted that we were homesick. Oh, okay. Um, so it's funny, we, we like joke about that uh, in years past. But basically after, once my parents told me like, hey, you guys take it out at least for a year and we'll see what happens. Uh, so when spring semester uh, rolled around and um, started playing lacrosse, which is a new sport for me that I really enjoyed and got a better group of friends and started doing better in my classes. Um, and decided to stick around from that point. And from that point on, I really, really loved and enjoyed my experience That's here. That's awesome. It's, uh, it is funny to see like how pivotal yeah. uh, Andover was in, in the course of my life essentially. So like how it really kind of swung the course of my life in, in the direction that it did. Um, I don't, I, knew that I wanted to join the Navy prior to coming to Andover, I think. Yeah. Um, but I probably wouldn't have ended up going to Georgetown, the School of Foreign Service, which I went to for university and doing ROTC there. Yeah. So I don't know that I would have ended up in the same place, and, and Andover definitely uh, 
helped me like leapfrog into a new station in life. I think that That's probably cool. wouldn't have reached otherwise. Yeah, it sounds like it was a, like you said a pivotal kind of decision making process and the idea that you you know at different points in that process either it was you who persevered because you said look I'm applying to your parents I'm going right. for it and your parents were like okay fine yeah. and then it was your parents who said you're staying right for that first year yeah and um, you figured it out and um, what was it along the lines there that lifted yeah. you was it I mean you can't just pull up at Andover and make it like you in some cases need to ask for help so what lifted yeah. you so I definitely um, uh, reached out for help certainly amongst like my friend group and my peer group so yeah. my friends on Rockwell that I met through my classes and through, and through sports um, definitely reached out I remember like Jose Wilkes was in a Spanish class in the end that was like one of my worst classes because yeah. I had jumped into this like advanced beginner class but had zero Spanish experience and I was already two weeks late because I switched from Latin yeah. anyways so I remember like he was in my room like every night we were watching these Destinos like Spanish soap opera episodes <laughs> which was like part of our homework and we have to like answer these questions and he I was frustrated with him because he would never just like what's the answer to this one he would just like give me this whole story about like what's going on in the series i'm just like i don't care what i don't know what's going on i see this answer but uh, he helped me out a lot and uh, i think i had some peer tutors uh as well when i was in andover so actually the funny thing is i started doing a lot better in spanish and i became a spanish tutor i think my junior That's year awesome. yeah. or upper year yeah. uh whatever we call them here yep <laughs> the trajectory. Um, so yeah i wanted to help kids like me who were struggling in class so i became a spanish tutor and i think it was a math tutor as well temporarily but yeah, so definitely reached out to my friend group and then um, uh, worked with some professors as well uh, who kind of mentored me. Mrs. Washburn was uh, ended up yeah. being my house counselor the second year, but she was worked in admissions at the time. Yeah. Um, and it me to get into the school. And uh, I became good friends with her son, Walker, while he was here as well. So she helped me uh, get through it a lot as well. Nice. And lacrosse, were you, when you said you picked up lacrosse here, something yeah. I'd never tried before. Exactly. Yeah. So a new sport for me and it was, it was a lot of fun. I wasn't uh, particularly good. I didn't have any experience in it. Um, we had a lot of fun, like the JV2 lacrosse team, and, uh, and I really enjoyed playing the sport. So I think I, I played uh, for three years, and then my senior year I coached the, or I like, assistant manager coached like the, not coach, I guess I was the assistant manager for the uh, JV2 lacrosse team, yes. uh, which is a lot of fun. Nice. And then um, fast forward to um, post-college, or eventually making that decision to join ROTC and eventually going into the military. So was yeah. that a straight shot for you, or were there kind of different dips and turns in your professional life? Uh, it was pretty straight shot, so I knew like when I was in Andover that I my my grandfather's retired retired naval submarine captain and my uh, uncle was in the navy as well, so my mom's side of the family had a lot of naval heritage. I knew I wanted to be a naval officer, um, but I was always kind of just drawn to aviation. I think because of kind of like the excitement aspect of it, um, and I knew I wanted to do something that was um, going to be like impactful and important and wasn't going to be like a desk job. Um, so I knew I wanted to join the navy. So I was looking at basically the naval academy. We're doing naval ROTC when I applied to colleges. Um, so I worked with the college counseling office here um, and to, for that school selection, essentially. And then I uh, ended up actually getting to the Naval Academy and getting waitlisted at Georgetown, the School of Foreign Service. So initially signed the papers to go to the Academy. And then two weeks later, I got a call from Georgetown asking if I wanted to get off the waitlist of the School of Foreign Service. And at that point, I was going back and forth again because I felt like maybe the Naval Academy was going to be the more character-developing course um, just for the overall experience. But mm -hmm. I knew academically the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown was going to be better for what I wanted to study. Mm -hmm. Um, coming out of here, so I knew I'd taken economics here with um, uh, Carol Perry, and I'd taken an international relations course with uh, Professor Gurry as well. So I knew I was really interested yeah. in studying those sorts of things. So the School of Foreign Service was high on my list. Uh, ended up deciding to go to the School of Foreign Service and doing neighbor ROTC through George Washington, which is a consortium school. Yeah. Um, and uh, definitely have no regrets about that. Really enjoyed my experience and got commissioned and went down to flight school. Nice. And so where has that taken you? And have you done um, yeah. foreign service missions, or have you been mostly domestic? Yeah. 
So I was uh, went to flight school in 2012, uh, and then took about a year and a half to get my wings. Yeah. Um, the selected helicopters, uh, went up to Norfolk and got um, trained on the MH-60 Sierra, the Nighthawk, which is what I fly now. Uh, then I went to HSC-9 for my first fleet squadron. Uh, HSC-9 is part of an air wing, so we we're part of the George H.W. Bush strike group. Yeah. Uh, so we deployed, uh, we got back in August, I think we deployed in January uh, of 2017. Okay. And got back in August of 2017. So we deployed with them and we uh, did some operations in the Eastern Mediterranean for a while and then uh, went up into the Gulf uh, and then back to the Eastern Med and then did an exercise with the British and Norwegians in the backside called Saxon Warrior. Mm -hmm. um, then uh, also spent uh, about a month in Kuwait uh, and about a month in Germany. Yeah, I mean, that is quite a tour. And you're thinking about some of those times where have you... Um, Talk about the missions. I think that have been part of the most impactful for you in terms of what you what you're doing, what your what the mission is, and, yeah. and how that's really kind of hit you either mentally or, or even just to to kind of keep you up. Yeah. So I think uh, one of the reasons I like helicopters is we do a lot of different type of mission sets. So yep. It's a multi-mission helicopter, and we do a lot of different things. Uh, so every day is a little bit different. I think the missions that have meant the most to me are the ones where you can see like the direct impact of what you're doing. So sometimes that's like um, vertical replenishment is um, external cargo operations where mm -hmm. we're sling loading cargo between ships and they're like steaming right next to each other. Yeah. Um, and so obviously in this last, uh, the carrier was heavily involved uh, with strikes in Iraq and Syria and we were the ones that were delivering the, the bombs and the warheads and the ordnance wow. from the supply ships of the carrier. Um, so you have a, definitely a role to play in that. And then we also fly plane guards so every time the jets take off and land from the carrier, there's helicopters airborne in case okay. uh, they have to punch out or go in the water, then we uh, go scoop them up essentially. Um, so it's always nice when, you're, when you do all this training and then you actually get to do the thing for real life. Um, but the other missions that are really uh, impactful are the ones where uh, medevac missions essentially. So those are actually pretty routine. Um, just flying off the carrier, medevacing someone to a hospital. Or uh, there's a case where I um, ended up um, hoisting a guy off of a fishing boat um, who had been like uh, vomiting for like a day and a half and was like severely dehydrated. Um, we took him to a, a local hospital nearby. Uh, person had a seizure, fell down a flight of stairs in the boat, yeah. a ladder well, and they uh, weren't breathing on their own anymore. So like the flight dock and like a bunch of tanks of oxygen, we loaded them up at night and took off and uh, took them to the hospital as well. That so. was a night mission? Yeah. Well, that's um, thinking about the complicating factors of those and where I thought you were going with some of this, um, the war-torn areas as well too. I mean, talk about the, the atmosphere there and sort of the intensity yeah. behind what that work at that moment. Yeah, so mostly in the, in the naval helicopter world, we don't do a lot of missions like inland. Okay. So we're, I didn't, never flew in Iraq or Syria. The closest we got was Kuwait, and that was for training stuff. Okay. Um, but uh, so we're pretty much operating from the boat and coming back to the boat. Um, but you, do, you are a piece of that puzzle as far as like the strike operations that operate off the carrier because the helicopters, uh, A, we fly plane guards, so you have to have a air, helicopter airborne for any time the, the mm -hmm. jets take off and land. And then also we do um, anti-surface warfare, so we protect the carrier and other, other surface asset assets against threats, particularly in restricted waters like the Straits of Hormuz. Mm -hmm. uh, so we arm up for those with a bunch of uh, different weapon systems to protect the carrier. And so, so back to the night missions as well, too. To yeah. how, how does that differ? And is that, um, is it instrument training? Is that kind of a whole different venture yeah. for you? So uh, we fly with night vision goggles at night. Yeah. Uh, so it's definitely a little bit more complicated. You know, your focal vision, your vision goes from everything you can see about 140 degrees down to about 30 huh. or 40 degrees. Um, so you're looking through basically toilet paper tubes. You got to move your head around a lot yes. to be able to see anything. It just, it just, we train to it a lot, obviously, so it's not an unfamiliar operation. Um, it just makes everything a little bit more difficult, um, a little bit slower process maybe. So when you do have something that's kind of urgent, like a medevac, you have to get off deck pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's uh, it definitely adds an extra like element of difficulty. I would say mm -hmm. just flying that in operations. The same thing with instrument flying as well. So we do we are instrument rated. Mm -hmm. um, so we fly in the clouds, all other aircraft. Um, and so there was a case actually when I was on a medevac, and we had a, a, a minor aircraft emergency um, on the way to. We were basically halfway between the ship and the shore when this happened. So we continued to the shore, uh, and then when we got to the shoreline, we noticed there's like a huge fog bank, so we couldn't go visual flight rules to the hospital like we were planning on going. So then we had to change our plan, talk to um, an approach controller, try to get an instrument approach into the nearest airfield and have an ambulance wait for us. Okay. Um, but as we're climbing up for this like instrument approach, we we'll, like look and find like a little hole through the clouds. We were able to just, you did you know, it? I could, through the hole in the clouds, I could see the actual runway. So we just like dove right through the hole and like ended up landing pretty quick. But, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Um, have you ever felt um, in danger yourself where you, you know, you're in whatever zone you might be in and, and thinking this is not working out the way it's supposed to be right now? Um, so another another reason I like flying helicopters is you're not alone and unafraid, essentially. You're not single piloted. Yeah. You have always at least two pilots uh, and then usually an air crew and potentially more people. Okay. Um, so I like that team aspect of it, the teamwork aspect of it, that you're not alone. Uh, in making decisions and you can help each other stay out of a bad situation and if you get in a bad situation you always have someone there to help you out of it as well um, and even if that's not even in your helicopter we always, typically fly with the wingman as well so you have another helicopter that's there to assist so I like that aspect of flying helicopters a lot there definitely have been a few just training missions or things we do routinely that uh, get a little hairy at nighttime or flying, flying in the clouds or flying in, the, um, in a dust cloud for like degraded visual environment landings in the desert and stuff like that so um, we definitely put a lot of safety measures in place in, in the brief and everything like that, so uh, to try to help you protect there. But there's been a few moments where you're like, oh, God, that turned out. <laughs> yeah. That's impressive. Um, this is great. I mean, this is really interesting. I would love to hear you describe the craft itself, meaning the aircraft, like yeah. the, the pieces of it, like your inside. So to talk to us about what it, what it looks like. And yeah. So I fly the uh, MH-60 Sierra, which is the Navy's version of the Blackhawk helicopter, yeah. basically. Um, it's a multi-mission helicopter, so we do a lot of different things. Uh, so we do anti-surface warfare, which I mentioned um, briefly earlier. So we have actually a 20 millimeter machine gun that's forward firing and pilot controlled, unguided rockets, laser guided rockets, Hellfire missiles. Uh, and then in the back, the gunners have um, 240s and 50 cals. Uh, and then we do normal search and rescue, combat search and rescue, special operations support. Uh, so insert extract seals, uh, emergency close air support, Kazavac, Medivac. Uh, we do vert which I talked about sling loading cargo earlier, um, and then we just do a lot of like pack mill cargo logistics uh, movements as well. So we do a lot of different things, and so there's a lot of like kind of components that can be on or off the helicopter depending on what we're doing. Uh, we also have a, a forward-looking infrared uh, FLIR or multi-spectral targeting system, which has low-light TV cameras, day TV cameras, and then infrared cameras, uh, as well as a series of lasers we use like designate targets uh, or like determine estimate a range estimation of things, or also just like target or um, you can, on night vision goggles, you can see one of the lasers. So if I'm trying to get someone else to see what I'm seeing, I can laze it and mm -hmm. they'll be able to see what I'm looking at. Um, Are the gunners on there with you? You were talking about the, they're, so they're part yeah. of your crew? Yep. So you have two pilots? So yeah, it depends on the mission you're doing. Yep. You might just have two pilots and one crewman. Yep. Or if you have gunners, you eventually have two pilots, a crew chief, <laughs> and two gunners, or four gunners. It really depends on kind of what you're doing. Um, the helicopter is, uh, it's got a single main, main rotor and a single tail rotor. Um, it's pretty large. I think it's, uh, let's see, the main rotor head is 53 feet and 8 inches. Yeah. And then from tip to tail, it's 64 feet and 10 inches. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I, this is great stuff. I know for, for radio, for podcasts, it's yeah. hard so you get a real visual and get a feel for it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's uh, about the life at sea. Oh, right yeah. There. It's not very glamorous, <laughs> tell you what. It's not like, uh, it's not like uh, going on a cruise ship. Well, I've never been on a cruise ship. 
Um, so it's uh, it's inter- it's it's cool to be part of the carrier because you're part of carrier aviation, um, and so it's not just some a lot of helicopter squadrons that work on the expeditionary sides, so like they're on a supply ship or on their a cruiser destroyer, kind of alone and unafraid doing their own thing. Um, but on the carrier, you've got uh, obviously two. Hel- you got not obviously you have two helicopter squadrons. Uh, you have about four F-18 squadrons, uh, a Growler squadron, an E-2 squadron, and a C-2 squadron, um, at least most much. So everyone's kind of working together um, and tons of aircraft on that thing that uh, do this sort of aerial dance every day to make all the operations work. Um, so that's pretty cool, uh, cool aspect of it. And the ship itself is uh, obviously pretty large, it has about uh, 4,000 people on board uh, for deployment. Um, so yeah, you can, as an officer, you can have kind of staterooms eight man probably like the most you're gonna have as an officer eight man possibly six possibly four possibly three possibly two so i was um relatively senior for a junior officer when i got to deployment so i was lucky to have a two-man stateroom uh which is nice not having you know eight roommates um food's okay not great pretty bad <laughs> uh and then of course it gets kind of groundhog day because you do the same sort of operations day after day uh and then of course it's nice to be able to get in a, in a helicopter and fly away from the ship uh, and go cloud surfing or something, just like, or maybe you go to land and drop someone off, pick yeah. someone up kind of thing. So we get a chance to get off the ship, but for the guys who aren't pilots who don't get to fly off, it's, they're on that thing for a long time. So uh, that can be a little redundant. But yeah, it's, uh, you, you kind of, there's a lot of like force camaraderie. You know, you got yep. 4,000 friends and that's all you got. Yep. So uh, everyone's hanging out with each other in the, in the red rooms or uh, going to meals together, working out together, watching movies together, yeah. reading books, all kind of stuff, so. What's that cycle like with home and work? home and mission how does that yeah it's uh i was so we were gone for a seven month deployment but uh from the time that we left the time we got back if you looked at the previous one year we were gone for like 10 months that we were gone for like in the last like i can't remember what the math was we were gone for like 12 months in total for all the workups uh for this deployment and then deployment itself uh so you know it's tough when you're if you're home if you got especially if you got like a wife and kids or anything like that always leaving them or in my case a dog and a girlfriend (laughs) so just as um, important. But uh, it's easier when you're doing training in land base because you usually have access to Wi-Fi and you can Skype back or FaceTime, uh, even call. On the ship, it's actually pretty limited. It's kind of funny. You would think that uh, the world's best Navy would have, like, I don't know, internet access in the ship, uh, which they do, but it's, like, super limited. Uh, definitely not going to be able to Skype or FaceTime anyone on that. Um, and you can barely get access to, like, email and Facebook if you're lucky. So. Um, this yeah. is we appreciate you stopping by and hanging with us and thank you for your service i mean this is it's really quite an incredible story too and to know that andover was a, a bit of a stepping stone for that structure for you yeah. is um that's impressive every quarter is produced by the office of communication at phillips academy in andover and made possible by a grant from the abbott academy fund continuing abbott's tradition of boldness innovation and caring like what you've heard spread the word Share EQ with friends and connect with us using the hashtag EveryQuarterPodcast. You can also find us at podcast.andover.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Jesse Wallner.